Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, I hope you're all doing well. You know, this is the fifth anniversary of True Crime Island podcast, so thank you all for your support over the years, and it's what keeps this island going. And special thanks to past and present Patreons, anyone who's PayPal'd me, and also to my Facebook mods, Tony, Abby, and Jason. Okay, tonight we have a case that you've probably heard of. It's a case about one of America's most, most ruthless serial killers, a case that took nearly 20 years to finally bring the perpetrator to justice. It's, of course, the Green River serial killer, Gary Ridgway. So I can hear everyone going, oh, no, I'm Ridgewayed out, but just have a listen. References tonight are the News Tribune, the Spokane Chronicle, the Missoulian, oh, God, I'm going to get some emails, the Charlotte Observer, The Desert Sun, my old favourite, The Cold Case Files, which triggered this one, Uh, Biography.com, The Seattle Times, a book, Chasing the Devil by Sheriff Dave Reichert, and a lot of this is from The Prosecutor's Summary. Okay, so let's get straight into it. It's 1982, Kent, King County, Washington, US of A. Now, Kent is south of Seattle, Now, I wouldn't call it a huge town as the population is only around 132,000 now. But back in 1982, it was only 23,000 people. Now, if you have a good look on Google Earth, it's in the middle of a strip of populated areas between Seattle and Tacoma. And either side of that, if you just take a short drive, you basically come to bush or rural areas. Okay, on, the, on July the 8th, 1982, 16-year-old Wendy Caulfield left her foster family's house in Up, Tacoma, Washington. She was known to work the streets along Pacific Highway South, or they call it PHS for short, and that's in King County. Now, when Wendy left her home that night, she was never seen alive again. One week later, on July 15, 82, Two young boys bicycling along the Peck Bridge in Kent noticed an object floating below them in the Green River. On further inspection, they discovered Wendy's body caught along one of the pilings under the bridge. Wendy was naked, with the exception of her shoes and socks. The remainder of her clothing, jeans, undies and shirt were knotted around her neck like a ligature. An autopsy confirmed that Wendy had been strangled. She suffered a fractured hyoid bone as well as significant hemorrhaging in her neck muscles. In addition, her left humerus, which is the upper arm bone, was broken. The condition of her body was consistent with death having occurred shortly after her disappearance the week before. Then just four weeks later on August the 12th, the body of 23-year-old Deborah Lynn Bonner would be seen by a meatpacking worker at PD&J Meats on a smoke break. Deborah's body was just a short distance from where Wendy's body was found. Now, Deborah had floated down the river and become caught on a log jam. On the 25th of July, Deborah had left the motel on the PHS to catch some dates or 
work the streets. She'd been arrested twice in the month before she went missing for prostitution. Her body was naked and she'd been strangled. So, one body in the river's one thing. To have two bodies in the same area just metres apart in a week and a half, that's going to raise some eyebrows. But then unbelievably, just three days later on August the 15th, in the same area of Green Creek, two more bodies were seen in the creek by guy rafting. Now, when investigators get to the scene, one of them, Detective Dave Reichert, he walks along the riverbank, he's just looking for more evidence, and he locates a third body in the long grass. The three women would be identified as Marsha Chapman, Cynthia Hines, and Opal Mills. The first body in the river was 31-year-old Marsha Chapman, who'd been living with three children in an apartment near PHS. Now, she worked the streets for money. On August the 1st, 82, Marsha left her apartment and wasn't seen again. When Dave Reichard saw a body weighted down with rocks, he saw one of her arms was floating free. Dave said it was like she was waving to him to tell him that here she was, come get me. On the night of August 11th, 1982, 17-year-old Cynthia Hines, well, she was out on PHS walking the streets for money as well. Her pimp last saw a man driving a black Jeep picking her up. She was never seen again until she was found in the river. And on August 12th, the day actually Deborah Lynn Bonner was discovered, at approximately 1pm, 16-year-old Opal Mills placed a call to her parents from Angle Lake State Park just off PHS. After that call, she was never heard from again. Now, friends later reported Opal had been walking the streets for money. Now, it was her body that Dave found on the riverbank. All three women had been strangled to death. Now, detectives have five dead women, all strangled, naked, found within metres of each other in Green River at Kent. A tentative link between the women were that they all walked streets for money, but they were black and they were white women. Deborah and Wendy were white, while Marsha, Cynthia and Opal were all black. As you can imagine, investigating one murder would be difficult enough, let alone now having five. And they were looking like pretty much perpetrated by the same person. So investigators, they end up setting up the Green River Killer Task Force in the News Tribune of the 16th of August, where they were reporting on the latest three bodies being found. They mentioned that when Wendy was found, she'd been the fifth teenager found strangled in King County that year. Now, although the four others had been dumped in bushland fully clothed, they weren't known to hitchhike and hadn't been sexually molested. Now, this was unlike the five bodies found in Green River. Then on September the 25th, 19-year-old Giselle Ann Lovem, her remains were found near an apple tree in a wooded area near South 200th Street and 18th Avenue South, King County. Now, it's just at the southern tip of this Seattle-Tacoma or SeaTac Airport. Now, Giselle had left her apartment two months earlier, telling friends she was going out to turn some tricks. The area she was found was where she would often take her customers. Now, she'd been strangled with a pair of men's socks that were still wrapped around her neck. Apart from the ligature, there was no clothing on her body, although her jewellery remained in place. Giselle's body lay on its back with the legs fixed wide at the hip. 
and the knees bent at approximately 90 degrees. Now, a little bit I found in the Seattle Times, which I heavily edited, and that goes, in mid-September 1982, 43-year-old taxi driver Melvin Wayne Foster called King County Police. Now, he'd previously done time for stealing cars, this Foster bloke. Now, Foster was one of these people that inject themselves into crime investigations, and so he contacted police. Now, Foster's suspicions were that it was a fellow taxi driver because in his line of work, he would drive up and down the main strips where these girls would walk the streets for money and realised how easy it was for taxi drivers to pick up. Now, police were very, very suspicious of Foster and he became a prime suspect. Now, what ended up happening? This diverted a lot of attention and resources into Foster. But as the cops would say... Foster looked great. It was a judgment decision. You can go back and second guess that until the cows come home. The issue is, did we have reason at the time to consider him? We did consider him and we took the appropriate steps. Now, Foster fit the psychological profile of the murderer, according to the investigators, so they put him under 24-hour surveillance from September the 15th until late November. Police conducted two searches of his house over a two-month period. They also took hair and blood samples from him. Foster took a lie detector test, and guess what? He failed. They even put a hidden camera in his house. Now, that that was actually operational until mid-1985. Now, in 1985, Foster advertised his car for sale. And guess what? A plainclothes cop went and bought it for cash. Not his cash the cash that came out of the the cop till. Forensics went over that car with a fine-tooth comb, looking for trace evidence such as hair, carpet fibres and bits of fabric. You know what they do. Pieces of the car were even sent to the FBI's laboratory for more analysis. All this time, Foster was denying having anything to do with the murders and offered an explanation from him failing the polygraph that he was just normally a nervous person. By 1985, the FBI told the Green River Task Force that Foster was not their guy, which is ironic as it was their profiling that made him a prime suspect in the first case. Now, as we know in true crime, anyone who wants to inject themselves into an investigation will be closely looked at. Foster liked younger women also, and he drove a cab. So he's the sort of person who fit the bill for the sort of girls that were women that would getting murdered and he had plenty of opportunity driving around in a car all night now when foster said he didn't know the first five green river victims and the polygraph indicated he was lying i mean this really didn't help his case and he later admitted to knowing the victims saying he didn't recognize them from the photos he was given now investigators were convinced foster was the killer but he wouldn't confess and there was no evidence Because of the 24-hour surveillance, Foster called the media and told them police were harassing him. Foster said he wanted police to lay an egg or get off his nest. Now that made it worse. Police got more sus of him because he'd thrown down the challenge now to the cops. What a challenge. Lay an egg or get off the nest. So their textbooks were telling them that doing this, putting out a challenge, was a psychological traitor serial killer. So it must be him. Now, what I find funny about all this is that 
while he was under heavy, heavy, such heavy surveillance, there were multiple more murders and plenty of bodies being found. And I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Now, Foster said, ubiquity being a physical impossibility, I could not be where those girls were when I, I couldn't set foot off my residence without being in direct and clear sight of two King County policemen, which does make sense. I mean, I guess that's because the, look, some of the bodies weren't found in the river. And so not being connected to the initial murders being dumped in a river and some of these that were murdered had yet to be found. So they were still on the missing persons list to the police and the lack of new murders that they connected to the Green River Killer, well, they thought it was solely down to their heavy surveillance of Foster. I mean, how wrong they were. There was an issue at the time where police wouldn't release photos of missing women, or at least not those that were walking the streets for money. If they had actually publicised all missing people, there was probably a lot better chance of someone coming forward with more information, which in turn may have either cleared Foster or pointed them in another direction. So if you are known to walk the streets and get some money and you go missing... Cops don't put your photo in the paper. But if your, I don't know, 16-year-old white girl goes to school and you go missing, you're all over the media. So this is why a lot of people would come forward later on when they did see these photos and they were giving police information. Most of these people just thought the person that they knew in the photos, they hadn't seen for months or years, they just moved away. But if they had actually had their photos in the paper, they could have had so much more information. Anyway, let's get on from that. By December 1982, the 25-member Green River Killer Task Force had been sort of not so much 100% disbanded, but the staffing level on the case was cut right back. Police did try to clean up the areas where the women were walking the streets for money just to try and, I don't know, clean things up, but they just moved them to moved on to other locations. The customers went there as well, and guess what? So the Green River Killer. Anyway, let's get away from the foster distraction and back to the summary of 1982. And so we're right at the start of all this. Now, out of the six bodies found in 1982... There would actually, later on we'll find out, be 16 victims. Ten of the bodies are yet to be found. So that's 16. Then, between January 31st and December 15, 1983, nine more women would be found strangled. However, there would be 16 more bodies yet to be found of women who went missing that year. We go through a few of these. 16-year-old Linda Jane Rule was last seen on Sunday, September 26, 1982, around 2.30 p.m. She was on her way to the Kmart at Aurora on 130 Street in North Seattle. Now, she walked the streets for money on the Aurora Strip and was known to date at the parking lot of Northwest Hospital in Seattle. Four months later, on January 31st, 1983, construction workers found Linda's skeletal remains in a wooded area at Northwest Hospital. All of her clothes and property were missing. 
Though Linda was never initially included as a victim of the Green River Killer, her murder had all the characteristics of a Green River case and occurred during the period of the Green River murders. Like most of the official Green River victims, she was involved in walking the streets for money and her body was both unclothed and outdoors when discovered. And on April the 30th, 1983, Gary Ridgway, he came to the attention of the task force as a result of the disappearance of Marie Malva. Now, that case was initially investigated by the Des Moines Police Department. A man reported that Ridgway's truck appeared similar to the one in which he'd seen Marie Malva on the night she disappeared. However, the man's description of the driver and the vehicle were very general. Now, I think this guy who reported it was either her boyfriend or boyfriend slash pimp. The next day, Malva's boyfriend contacted her father and they searched the neighbourhood looking for the truck. And guess what? They found it parked in front of Gary Ridgeway's house in Des Moines. They contacted police and this caused the Green River Task Force to focus on Ridgeway. Not focus on him, focus on him to the extent they focused on Foster... But they focused on him. Ridgway was interviewed but denied picking up Malva and with no evidence to implicate him in her disappearance, the case stalled. However, four years later in 1987, it was this lead that prompted police to take saliva samples from Ridgway. Why, did they, why didn't they do it at the time? I don't know. There's so many crazy things about this case. In fact, Ridgeway, he resurfaced several times as a possible Green River suspect. During the 1980s, task force detectives investigated Ridgeway and interviewed him on multiple occasions. In his words, he admitted dating prostitutes, including at least one of the missing victims. He admitted assaulting streetwalker Rebecca Gardegway, claiming he did so because she bit him. After one interview, Ridgway successfully passed a polygraph examination in which he denied killing any of the women. So we heard about Linda Jane Rule's body being found in January of 83, but between May the 8th and December the 15th, eight more bodies would be found. Now they were Carol Ann Christensen, 21, Shonda Leah Summers, 16, Gail Lynn Matthews, 23, Yvonne Shelley Antosh, 19, Constance Elizabeth Nayon, 19, Kelly Marie Ware, 22, Mary Bridget Min, 18, and Kimmy Kai Pitzer, 16. Now, Linda, Shauna, and Mary, they'd all actually been missing between September 15 and October 9 the year before, 1982. Then we get to 1984. The bodies of strangled streetwalkers keep piling up. There will be 13 more found that year. Delise Louise Plager, 22. Lisa Yates, 19. Wendy Stevens, 14. Cheryl Lee Wims, 18. Dolores Laverne Williams, 17. Debbie May Abernathy, 26. Terry Renee Milligan, 16. Sandra K. Gabbett, 17. Alma Ann Smith, 18. Tina Marie Thompson, 21. Colleen Renee Brockman, 15. Mary Sue Bello, 25. And Martina Therese Ortholee, 18. In December of 84, Rebecca Gade Guay, she was the one who reported that she'd been the victim of a violent assault. 
Now, according to Rebecca, the assault occurred in November of 82. So this was two years after it happened. Now, she says she was hitchhiking in the PHS when a man in a truck offered her a ride. Rebecca asked him if he was dating and offered him a blowjob for 20 bucks. The man agreed and she directed him to a secluded area not far from PHS at approximately 204th. Rebecca questioned the man about whether or not he's the Green River Killer. He assured her that he's not the Green River Killer, showed her several items from inside his wallet, including an ID card from the Kenworth Trucking Company, and hey, he had a picture of his son in there as well. I mean, how could he be the Green River Killer? When they arrived there, the man asked her to go into the woods to do the deed. Now, Rebecca agreed and they went into the woods. The man pulled his dax down and Rebecca kneeled in front of him and began to blow him. However, the man had a soft on and couldn't get hard. Suddenly, the man accused Rebecca of biting him. He knocked her to the ground, pushed her face into the dirt and wrapped his arm around her neck in a police-type chokehold. Rebecca struggled and pleaded that all she had was her family and that she didn't want to die. After 10 or 15 seconds, she broke free and ran into a nearby trailer for help. The man initially pursued her, but then gave up. He redressed and drove out of the area. Now hysterical, Rebecca told the trailer occupants how she'd been attacked. Her blouse was torn and there were abrasions on her neck. Rebecca was obviously terrified and was certain that the man had intended to kill her. Rebecca was initially reluctant to report the assault because she was engaging in prostitution when she was assaulted. Eventually, with the enormous publicity surrounding the Green River killings, Rebecca called the task force and reported what had happened. Now, Rebecca gave a description of her attacker, a white male, 30 to 35 years old with light brown hair, possibly with a moustache. Although it was November, the man was wearing shorts, t-shirt and tennis shoes. She thought his vehicle was a 1980s burgundy or maroon pickup and it had a white canopy. Rebecca told the police about the Kenworth identification the man had shown her and this information led police to link the attacks to Ridgeway. Her description of her assailant and his vehicle generally matched Ridgeway and his pickup truck. Rebecca was shown a photographic montage of six men and immediately identified Ridgeway as the man who attacked her in November of 82. In February of 85, a task force detective contacted Ridgeway and confronted him about Rebecca's allegations. Ridgeway admitted that he had dated Rebecca. He maintained, however, that he choked her as a reflexive reaction to her biting his penis. According to the detective, Rebecca told him that she didn't wish to pursue the case and Ridgeway was not charged. It's crazy, isn't it? Okay, at this point, I'm sure that the police should have had enough to really go for Ridgeway, but they seem incapable of having enough to charge him. At this stage, right, here's the count. There's 28 bodies found. That's 28 found. We're talking a couple of years. But there's also 15 other women that are missing, that may or may not be linked to this Green River Killer guy. In 1985, Carrie Ann Royce, Shirley Marie Sherrill, Denise Darcel Bush, Mary Exeter West, Sandra Denise Major, well, their bodies would also be found. In 86, unidentified white female Jane Doe B-17, Tracy Ann Winston, Marie Sue Feeney, and Kimberly L. Nelson, their bodies would be found. Now, things seem to be slowing down a bit. 
1987, it would be Cindy Ann Smith's body would be found. In 88, Deborah Lorraine Estes' body would be found. In 1989, Andrea Marion Childers' body would be found. In 1990, Marta Reeves' bodies would be found. 1991, Roberta Joseph Hayes' body found. 1993, Patricia Michelle Barzak, her body's found. 1998, there would be Patricia Yellow Robe, her body would be found. Now, there were distinct dumping grounds forming. There was the Green River area. There would be bodies found at the north end of Seattle-Tacoma Airport and another one at the southern end of the airport. Also, there was a dumping ground of six bodies and that was close to Ridgeway's former home at Star Lake. About half an hour or so drive northwest of Kent, there were dumping grounds near the intersection of Interstate 90 and Highway 18 and another not far at the Interstate 90 exit 38. Now, two bodies were found two and a half hours drive south of Kent in Tigard, southwest of Oregon. So, we haven't heard much about this Gary Ridgeway yet. He's been mentioned. So, let's find out a bit more. Gary Ridgeway was born February 18, 1949. When he was 11, Ridgeway and his family moved to King County, Washington. His parents' house was a short distance from the PHS, the area where he later found most of his victims. Ridgeway was held back two grades in school and graduated from Ty E. High School in 1969. He lured a kid to an isolated place and stabbed him when he was in sixth or seventh grade. The kid survived and never told his parents or police who did it to him. Now, Ridgeway killed animals. Now, this is a real serial killer trait. He also had mummy issues. His mum would constantly put him down and humiliate him in front of other people. His mum wanted to put him in a special school, but this caused his mum and father to argue, and I don't think this happened. He also had sexual fantasies about having sex with his mum from seeing a sunbathe in the backyard. Now, if you check out my YouTube channel and get a little bit more detail on that, there's an interview of him on there that I put up. Now, after he graduated from high school, Ridgeway worked briefly at Kenworth Motor Truck Company. In July of 69, he entered the military. In August of 70, while in the military, Ridgeway married his first wife, whom he had known and dated for several years. And while in the Navy, Ridgeway spent some time in the Philippines, where he claims, and this is his words, he first used prostitutes. In July 1971, Ridgeway was honorably discharged from the Navy and returned to King County. While Ridgeway was overseas, his wife became involved with another man, though. Now, when Ridgeway returned, she sought a divorce, which became final on January the 14th, 1972. Now, Ridgeway later claimed that his first wife had become a whore while he'd been overseas. In August of 71, Ridgeway began working as a painter at Kenworth. He worked at the Kenworth plant located on East Marginal Way South, a few miles north of the stretch of PHS, where he later picked up many of his victims. Ridgeway worked continuously for Kenworth as a painter and taper for over 30 years until his arrest on November 30, 2001, which we haven't got up to yet. In 1972, Ridgeway met his second wife. In December 73, they married. During their marriage, they lived in several residences in Renton, Federal Way and West Seattle. A son was born on September 5, 75. 
His second wife reported that Ridgway enjoyed having sex outdoors and was interested in bondage. She stated that Ridgway would often be gone during the evenings for long periods of time, sometimes returning to the house dirty or wet. She said that during the latter years of their marriage, Ridgway became be, began coming home later and later without logical explanation. Bit of a Dexter thing, wouldn't you think, the way he gets around at night. Now, she reported Ridgway, while walking with her in the woods, liked to hide from her, and he'd creep up behind her and find her. He liked to practice walking noiselessly. On at least one occasion, he choked her using a police-type hold with his forearm and upper arm. Now, their relationship, well, guess what? It deteriorated. (laughs) So any of that seem a little bit creepy to you? Now, honestly, I, I suppose it's good she was able to get out of that relationship. Now, the thing I think's crazy is during the 70s, She's saying he's coming home covered in dirt and he'd be gone long periods of time. Like I said, sort of like Dexter does and on the TV show. He does all this stuff at night and he comes home late, blah, blah, blah. If he's living by himself, that's okay. But when you're in a relationship, that's noticed. So, I don't know. Anyway, Ridgway and his second wife separated in July of 1980 and the divorce became final on May 27, 1981. She took primary custody of the son. Ridgway had custody of the boy on alternate weekends. In November of 81, Ridgway purchased a house at 21859 32nd Place, South King County. The house was just a few blocks from the PHS. Wonder who lives there now. Big shout out to whoever lives in that house now. For the next several years, Ridgway had relationships with a number of different women, many whom he met at an organisation for single parents, and that's parents without partners. He became engaged to one woman, and they planned to be married in June of 84. But the woman broke up with him after she met someone else. So lucky for her, she went from a parent without a partner to a parent with multiple partners, and she chose the right one. In February 85, Ridgway met his third wife. Several months later, she moved into his house, and in June of 88, they were married. Now, at this stage, the murders seem to have dropped right off when he meets his third wife. Ridgway subsequently moved several times, although he always stayed in the South King County area from 1989 to 1997. Now, Ridgway owned a residence in Des Moines, Washington, He then moved to Auburn, Washington, where he lived until 2001. Okay, now let's just go back a bit. Let's wind it back to April the 8th, 1987, where Task Force, well, they served a warrant on Ridgeway's residence, his work locker and several vehicles. Detectives seized hundreds of items of evidence, such as carpet fibres, ropes, paint samples and plastic tarps. They submitted these items to the Washington State Patrol Crime Laboratory and compared them to evidence found with the victims. Detectives obtained and analysed Ridgway's financial records. Now, none of the evidence collected appeared to link Ridgway with any particular scene or victim. However, one item of evidence seized would prove to be significant. A saliva sample taken from Ridgway during the execution of the warrant. More than 14 years later, in March of 2001, Detective Tom Jensen submitted biological evidence from several victims to WSPCL for DNA typing. In September 2001, WSPCL forensic scientist Beverly Himmick analysed the vaginal swabs from victim Marcia Chapman. 
She discovered that a partial male DNA profile on the swab was consistent with Ridgway's DNA profile. Hennick also analysed pubic hairs from victim Opal Mills and discovered a male DNA profile which also matched, matched Ridgway's. At around the same time, WSPCL forensic scientist Gene C. Johnson analysed the vaginal swabbing from victim Carol Christensen. She discovered that the DNA profile obtained from the sperm fraction on the vaginal swab was consistent with Ridgway's DNA. She calculated that not more than one, not more than one individual in the entire world, excluding an identical twin, would exhibit this DNA profile. This DNA linked Ridgway to only one dump site and one lone victim. As a result, the King County Sheriff's Office made preparations for his arrest. The police put together a multi-agency task force, the Green River Homicides Investigation, to prepare cases against Ridgway and review the remaining unsolved murders. All right, people, this is about halfway so far, so if you want to go for a bit of a, a break, you can cut it here. We're going to actually have two episodes, part one and part two, together. So, let's continue. On November 16, Ridgway attempted to pick up an undercover King County Sheriff officer posing as a prostitute on the PHS. He asked if she was dating and agreed to meet her down the road. He was arrested and released later that day. Now, ironically, when being interviewed at the King County Jail during his booking, Ridgway requested that they not contact his wife. Instead, he stated, you can contact the Green River Task Force. They know me real well. Two weeks later, on November 30, 2001, police arrested Ridgway for murder as he left for work at the Kenworth plant in Renton. Okay, so with Ridgway arrested, one of the original detectives that had the case way back in 1982, we've mentioned him before, Dave Reichert, well, he was now sheriff of King County. And in 1997, he'd actually reopened the investigation. It was the saliva sample that Ridgway gave to investigators in 1987 that sealed his fate. Sheriff Reichardt said, Although I'd look forward to this day for almost 20 years, nothing would have prepared me for the emotion I felt. Like others on the task force, I'd been frustrated and angry over our past failures. Now those feelings have disappeared. Now, one fun fact is that investigators took up an offer from Ted Bundy to help get into the mind of the Green River Killer. In 1986, Bundy wrote to Dave Reichert and he told him, Don't ask me why I believe I'm an expert in this area. Just accept that I am and we'll start from there. Now, Bundy suggested that the killer, which he called Riverman, might be going back to the sites he left the bodies and performing sexual acts and suggested that the detectives stake out fresh burial sites. He was pretty much right, but we'll get to that later. On December the 5th, 2001, Ridgway would initially be charged with four counts of aggravated murder in the first degree for the murders of Opal Mills, Marsha Chapman, Cynthia Hines, who were all found in the Green River, and Carol Christensen, who was found in woods near Maple Valley. In three of the counts, DNA linked Ridgway to the victims, and the fourth was Opal Mills, who did have a pube on her body, but she was just found a a few metres away from the other victims. On April 15, 2002, the King County prosecuting attorney provided a written notice that he would seek the death penalty. With Ridgway facing the death penalty, he was able to do a plea deal where he would have to confess to all his crimes, 
all the murders and also help police recover any bodies that may yet to be found. In return, the death penalty would be taken off the table. Now, this did anger some, but you've got to think, it also brought closure to many once the initial charges for four murders increased to 49. In August of 2003, unidentified female Jane Doe B, 20, aged 13 to 24, Pammy Annette Event, 15, April Dawn Buttram, 16, and Marie Malva, 18, would be discovered after Ridgeway told investigators where he dumped their bodies. They'd all been missing since 1983. Rebecca Becky Marrero, 20, who had been missing since 1982, well, she was discovered in 2010. So yeah, some weren't happy with the death penalty being taken off the table, but prosecutors have only been able to get Ridgeway on half a dozen charges without this assistance. This way, at least 49, 49 known victims' families can move on. I mean, if you can ever move on from losing someone you love and care for in such a horrific way. Part of the deal was to tell investigators how he did and why he did what he did. In 2003, Ridgway admitted that he killed dozens of women at his residence, except for six months in 1982 when he had renters living at the house. Ridgway had lived there alone until 1985. Now, Ridgway developed a number of ruses to gain the confidence of his victims. These methods, although simple, enabled him to continue killing long after news of the Green River Killer had reached the street. Ridgway admitted that many of the women he contacted, they asked him, are you the Green River Killer? Ridgway said he used his small stature to suggest that he couldn't be the killer. Okay, we're going to go through a few a few conversations with the detective and Gary Ridgway, all right? Did any of them ever ask you whether you were the Green River Killer? All the time. They always ask, even the ones I didn't kill. Ah, a lot of them did. What did you say? No, I'm not. Uh, do I look like the Green River Killer? And says, no, no, you don't. They always thought it was a big, tall guy, about six foot big guy. So six foot three, 185 pounds or something like that. Anyway, Ridgway estimated that 50 women asked him if he was the Green River Killer. He never told any of them he was. Well, why would you? Although he admitted to telling a couple of his victims as he strangled them that he was going to kill them. In contrast, some of the streetwalkers were reluctant to date Ridgway because they suspected he might be an undercover police officer. To allay these concerns, Ridgway carried beer with him in the truck, which he would offer to the women, who would then know I wasn't a cop. Relax with me. Ridgway developed a number of ruses to get women to trust him. He offered to become a regular customer, to lend him his vehicles, to get them jobs, to feed them. He didn't have to worry about keeping these promises because, as he said, they were already dead. And he said, and I would talk to her about that and get her mind off uh, anything she was nervous about and think, you know, she thinks, oh, this guy cares, and which I just didn't. I just wanted to... Uh, get her in the vehicle and eventually kill her. Even when the conditions were not right for killing a particular woman, if, for example, the woman was with a companion, Ridgway would often give the woman a ride. He was investing in his future to get him used to me in case I see one of them at a time, alone. 
If a woman was afraid to go go with him to a remote location, Ridgway would sometimes go with the date, hoping to exploit her increased sense of security at their next encounter. So he's just building up to any that were difficult. He just build up to it. Don't get caught. That's the number one of the code of Dexter's code. Don't get caught. Ridgway's methods enabled him to get his victims in situations where he could kill them without arousing their suspicions. He would offer a streetwalker more than she might usually make on a date to get her to go to a remote location with him. After all, he knew he wouldn't lose the money and in fact he might turn a profit if she had any cash on her. First thing you do is we talk about uh, what I want, how much I'm going to pay, knowing I was going to kill her. I uh, agreed on whatever she wanted because I had the money. When Ridgway planned to kill a woman, he was faced with having to convince the woman to leave the cab of the truck for the date. Ridgway explained that he would carry the spare tyre in the front seat area to claim that there was no room to have sex there. Another way Ridgway lulled his victims into trusting him was by using his son in a variety of ways to gain the confidence of the women he killed. So every time I opened up my wallet, there would be a picture of my son to one side, you know, behind my ID. Here's my ID. Here's a picture of my son on the back side. And they'd see that and they would lower any big defences. And just, you know, kids' toys, eight-year-old toys, on the kids' toys on the dash. Ridgway preferred to kill the woman at his the women at his home. When he managed to persuade a woman to come to his house for a date, Ridgway said he would use his son's room as a means of reassuring the women that he wasn't dangerous. He said, they look around and everything. They're getting more secure as you go. They look in the bedrooms. No one's in there. Nothing's. You know, there's my son's room. Hey, this guy has a son. He's not going to hurt anybody. His name's written on the door and it's empty and he's got this bunk bed there and toys on the floor. Ridgway acknowledged that he sometimes had to hide his emotions about missing a kill. There were times when he was unable to persuade a woman to have sex with him in a situation where he could kill her and had to release her unharmed. He would become so frustrated and angry and so eager to kill that he would have to calm down before he would begin hunting for another victim. He said, I couldn't all of a sudden pick up another woman and still be in that frustration. I'd be in the mood then right to get her in the car and choke her. But with the, I had to calm down to get, so I wouldn't like, I was, you know, be scared and shaking. If traces of that anger and frustration remained, Ridgway said he would offer the woman a non-threatening explanation. He'd say, well, sometimes like, I'd be anxious because of the frustration with the first one and I'd be shaking but I'd have to bring in on the side that I just got arrested a couple of weeks ago for prostitution and, you know, that's why I'm nervous. That's what he would say to the women. So he'd say, I've just been arrested a while back and they can see any kind of nervousness is because of that instead of the nervousness in wanting to be strange. Ridgway claimed he negotiated with the women to give him half and half. That's like a blowy followed by a root. He wanted them as naked as possible. When Ridgway took women to his house, he would encourage them to use the bathroom before they had sex. Now, this wasn't for their benefit. He knew from experience that victims of strangulation 
frequently become incontinent. He said, I was in the idea of getting them in there and killing them. I didn't want them to shit the bed. So that was the main reason. Now, Ridgway related that he murdered virtually all his victims with the same simple but effective method. During the sex act, he would tell the woman that he could only have an orgasm while entering her from behind. Now, when the woman was on her knees, doggy style, he would get behind her. Now, at the appropriate time, Ridgway claimed he would wait for his victim to raise her head and attack. And as Ridgway told a psychiatrist, and after I got behind them, I would climax and usually the woman would raise her head because, you know, the guy's through. I can get dressed. Usually when she raised her head up, I would wrap my arm around her or put something around her neck and choke her. Other times he employed a variation on that ruse. I'd tell him, here's a car coming. So guess what? She lifts up her head like that. She Like she's not thinking anything of it. Her hands are down normal and it's my time to wrap my arm around her neck and to choke her and not have have a get in the way of her mouth. I got bit in the hand with a mouth one time, but it's my idea to get her head up so I could get a clear shot of her neck to kill her. Now, Ridgway described one technique he said was particularly effective. When he began to strangle the women, he told them if they stopped struggling, he would let them go. Now, apparently, a number of women ceased to struggle when he said this, and they were easier to kill. He said, but I wasn't going to let her go. It was just my way of lying to her to keep her from fighting. She stopped fighting, and I just kept choking. Ridgway arrived at the solution to the fighting problem by trial and error. If they sensed that he was going to kill them, he said, his victims would often plead with him to spare their lives. Amongst their pleas they used, he said, were, don't kill me. I'm too young to die. I've got family I'm taking care of. I've got a daughter at home. I don't want to die. These pleas didn't persuade him, but Ridgway said he soon settled on telling the women if they stopped struggling, he would release them. Ridgway denied ever using a firearm to kill his victims. Similarly, Ridgway explained he didn't use a knife because it would have been too messy and because his victims still might be able to scream. When asked why he chose to choke his victims, Ridgway replied, because that was more personal and more rewarding than the shooter. Most often, Ridgway reported he strangled women by compressing their necks in the crook of his arm, using his other arm to add leverage. On many occasions, he demonstrated his technique for the detectives. He started with his right arm, he said, because he was right-handed. Sometimes, he said, if his right arm got tired and the victims weren't struggling too much, he would switch arms. To prevent the women from writhing around in his grip, Ridgway said he would wrap his legs around them. Some of the struggles were protracted. He said he had to roll over onto his back while squeezing the women with his legs and arms. Sometimes to finish the women off, he would roll them on their backs and stand on their throats. According to Ridgway, these struggles never lasted more than two minutes. He claimed that whether or not the women struggled had no effect on his gratification. Later, after some of his victims had scratched him while he strangled them with his hands or arms, Ridgway said he used ligatures. Ligatures included towels, a belt, a bathrobe tie, extension cord, rope, necktie, socks, jumper cables, a tie back for a curtain and his t-shirt. According to Ridgway, he killed his victims at his home in the back of his pickup truck under a canopy 
or outdoors. He said that the women he killed in his house were all killed in his bedroom, with the exception of one woman who escaped long enough to reach the front door. Ridgway said he killed her there in the living room. Ridgway denied that he ever tortured his victims or caused them any unnecessary pain. He admitted that once he attempted to set one of his victims' hair on fire after her death, and he said he abandoned this experiment when he became concerned that someone might see the smoke. Ridgway admitted that once, after killing a woman in the back of his truck, he tried to bring her back to life. You know, he said, pumping on her chest. And he said these efforts were unsuccessful. Had he been able to revive her, Ridgway said, he might have tried some some sort of torture, and be lim- but it would be limited to what he could do in the back of the truck. Ridgway denied experimenting with novel ways of murdering his victims. When an interviewer asked him why he didn't, he had a simple answer. I didn't because my method's working pretty good. He explained, choking is what I did, and I was pretty good at it. Initially, Ridgway adamantly denied having postmortem sexual contact with the women. A few days into the interview process, he acknowledged that he might have ejaculated right after choking them to death, but a few days later he admitted that he had post-mortem intercourse with some of his victims. But soon, he admitted that a few of these women had been decomposed enough that maggots had begun to appear on their bodies. Richway described his feeling about having sex with one of his dead victims. He said, that would be, well, that'd be a good day, an evening, or after I got off work, go and have sex with her. And that'd last for one or two days till it couldn't, till the flies came. And then I'd bury them and cover them up. And then I'd look for another. Sometimes I'd kill one, one day, and kill one the next day. There wouldn't be any reason to go back. Ridgway's desire for sexual intercourse with the corpse was apparently so strong that he would engage in risky behaviour to accomplish it. Ridgway described an occasion where he drove back to visit the body of a woman he had killed with his son in his truck. While his son slept in the back of the truck, Ridgway got out, had intercourse with the body some 30 feet away and returned to the truck. Ridgway assured the detective that his son was a hard sleeper. This is incredible. Ridgway claimed that he only had post-mortem sex with 10 or so of his victims, but as he explained to a psychiatrist, this was partly a matter of convenience because their bodies were close to his home. Ridgway's motives for post-mortem intercourse were, according to him, simple. He just wanted sex, and it was free. I didn't have to pay for it. I killed her. Ridgway implied that having sexual intercourse with a dead woman was not his preference. Rather, it was a matter of economics and convenience. Ridgway appeared indifferent to the race of these victims. Most of his victims were white, but he also killed many African-American women and several Asian women. He declared, I'd much rather have white, but black was fine. It's just, it's just garbage. Just something to screw and kill her and dump her. Then most of Ridgway's victims were in their teens. Ridgway seemed to prey on the younger women. According to Ridgway, these girls... They weren't adults, were relatively innocent and less, less likely to con him than the women in their early 20s. On the other hand, he seemed to suggest they may have pled more earnestly for their lives. He said, I talked to them before I had sex and then she'd say, I've only done this a few times before. He said, I mean, if she's 13 or 14 years old, you figure that's true. 
If you get one that's 20 and 25 that talks the slang and everything and they say, I've only done this a few times, they've probably got an arrest record and they're lying. But the young ones stood out more when they talked when they were dying. Ridgway made it clear to investigators and prosecutors that these were carefully planned, premeditated killings, not sudden impulses. He said, when I get in the truck, when I'm driving and I might pick up a woman, I want to be in the mood to kill. I don't have the mood, like I don't get her in the truck and drive down the road and all of a sudden, you know, jump on her and start choking her. No. Ridgway was fully committed to killing any woman he could. He said, I always, always had it in my mind to kill them. During his most active period, Ridgway said he killed virtually all the prostitutes he could. That's his words. During the killing spree, there were a few women I didn't, for some reason, I didn't kill. But they were few and far between. Ridgway said that during this period, he slept only a couple of hours a night and devoted the rest of his free time to hunting for victims, killing them and disposing of their bodies. Ridgway was not always able to kill a victim he selected. He invested considerable time and energy on victims that he was ultimately unable to murder and the failure enraged him and fueled his desire to kill. He said, I'm really mad at some of them because I didn't get a chance to pick them up. They want too much. They, they, their pimp might be following me or something. So I'm just, I just lost one. The next one I'm going to do everything I can to sweet talk her. I'm going to talk her into getting her out so I can kill the bitch. The first one I didn't get a chance to kill today. I'm going to kill this one and I'm going to strangle her head, strangle her neck so it breaks. Now, sorry if all that was a bit rough repeating what Ridgway had to say, but it really gives an insight into what he was thinking. He was a disgusting little man and it was his weediness that gave him, gave him an advantage when picking up his victims. So he did a plea deal so he wouldn't get executed, and he confessed to 49 murders. He would get life for each one of those convictions. When family members had their time in court and told Ridgway how they'd been affected by his action, he was actually brought, brought to tears in some cases. Now, I don't, I don't think you should read much into that, because he was a remorseless killer, preying on the vulnerable, proven by statements to police. Now, I will put up one of the interviews like I said before, you had with the media on my True Crime Island YouTube channel if you want to watch. And he just seems so, so, I don't know, so slow in that. And he's thinking about his childhood and his mother. It's, it's quite distressing to watch, actually. Anyway, my take on it all, if the missing women have been well off and didn't work the, walk the streets for money or, or be a runaway... I really think Ridgway would have been caught much earlier. Police did do a lot of investigation, but somehow I think the public really would have been up in arms if it was non-runaways, non-vulnerable, street-walking women, that sort of thing. Now, the police concentrating on one suspect, that Melvin Foster, right at the start, that just misused scarce resources. And Ridgway, he must have been laughing at him. He was reading the papers. He was looking at the news. Now, he, Ridgway really did play the police well. He moved his dumping grounds around and made sure he wasn't seen when picking up the women. His MO, find a woman or girl, make sure no one sees him with her. If she's hesitant about getting in the car with him, use a photo of his son to make her at ease. If the woman thought he was a cop, he would bring beer in the car to show that he wasn't. Cops don't have beer in the car. 
If he thought he couldn't get the kill or couldn't get the woman alone or any other reason why he couldn't kill, he would chalk that up as an investment in making the potential victim more at ease when he would contact her the next time. He did a lot of the killing in his house and would again make the women more at ease by showing her his son's bedroom with toys in it. The way he would offer to pay whatever amount, knowing he wasn't going to pay her at all after he strangled her and then stealing any money that she might have had on her. It just shows how vulnerable some of these women were. Then he would often go back and have sex with their bodies. Now, that wasn't because he had a necrophilia fetish, but because he could just do it free and they were only up the road. They were already already dead. He didn't have to go and get one. It's just sick, all of it. Taking bodies to dump with his son in the car, taking women with his son in the car and murdering them while his son slept in the front seat and even visiting the corpse with the son in the car to have free sex with him. Not only did he have a huge body count, but he was totally perverted. He saw most women as garbage, just a body for him to have sex with, kill, dump the body and then go home. He could then revisit the corpse for more sex until he couldn't bear the smell and the maggots. 49 was the official count, although apparently Ridgway confessed to many, many more. Now, under the plea deal, if police find him guilty of any more murders, he can be subject to the death penalty. But I really don't think they're looking very hard at all to pin any more crimes on him. Ridgway was one of the evilest of scum, another one caught out by forensic science advances. It did take nearly 20 years to bring him before the courts, thanks to Dave Reichert, who never forgot the victims and their families. I do recommend his book, Chasing the Devil. I got it on audio, although it isn't narrated by him. It would have been so much better if it had been narrated by him. And I I don't have an audio affiliate, audible affiliate or anything. I just got it on audible because it's so much easier to do research when you can just listen and not have to turn pages and look at something. Now, I know I didn't go into each of the victims' cases, as this honestly would have been a dozen-part series. But those I did go into, I hope it did convey what sort of animal Ridgway was. Okay, I know some of you already (laughs) have watched and listened to the mainstream serial killer shows, podcasts about him, but I really do hope you got something different out of this. So that's the end of this week's show. It was a longer episode, which initially would have probably been split into two parts. But last week, I actually hurt my back picking up the cat, of all things. And I couldn't move the mouse without excruciating pain. So I decided, oh, well, let's stick two episodes together. So it's going to be close to an hour. So what do you think, Islanders? You can always send a message to Facebook or send me an email, whatever, on what you think about Gary Ridgeway. I'd also like to thank my patrons past and present for keeping the island's lights on. Special thanks to all my patrons. Thank you so much. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, just a dollar every month, please check out patreon.com forward slash true crime island. Or if you just want to shout me a beer or do a one-off donation, you can do that at paypal.me forward slash true crime island. And a free beer is always nice after dumpster diving into these cases. Just like Zing Lee did last week. Thank you so much, Zing Lee. But can I just ask that you take the time to share the podcast with your friends or even in groups on Facebook or wherever. The Island is one of the few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and commercial free. Because of the straight up nature of how I bring the show to you, 
this doesn't go well with Apple algorithms and all that sort of bullshit. So I do rely on your help in getting the word out there. Best of all, it's free of charge to help the island out. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can stream each episode if you don't want to use the iTunes or any other pod player you got. Just download it off my website. And I have links to merch social media as well there. You can also email me if you want to get in touch for whatever reason. Now, I do have a promo at the end. So you might be interested in this. The Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legends. Check that out. So five years. Jesus Christ. It's been a long time, but I do remember even before I put an episode out and it's been a long journey. Again, thank you all so much for supporting the show. And that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Grime Island. And as I always say for five years now, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover though, whether right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty to deep forests and cabins in the wood or maybe even trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response as an ode to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains, though the many years of their existence, have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable. History as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or in some cases more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. Join me in my new podcast called Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Come with me on a fantastic journey through these mountains where we will explore Appalachian life, mysteries, legends, and history such as the true story of the wreck of old 97 or the first recorded serial killers in america big and little harp just to name a couple of episodes that's appalachian murder mystery and legend available right now on your favorite podcast media <laughs> i can guarantee it's not going to be anything like you think thank you <laughs>